0: It's interesting, he's going to maintain, Ishmael is going to maintain an independent standing In the presence of all the descendants of Abraham. Think about a map of the Middle East today. Think about it. This prophecy given thousands of years before Jesus. You're looking at its fulfillment today. Descendants of Ishmael. Dwelling in the presence of the descendants of Abraham.
1: Through Isaac. God knows your character. He's always known it. In Genesis 16, he knew the character of Abram, Sarai, and Hagar, and even Ishmael, an infant. None of us can claim knowledge like that. As Pastor Daniel will explain, the character of Ishmael permeates that of all his descendants. When God speaks to Abram, he makes himself known as the Almighty, and we must remember that's what he is to us. Now here's Pastor Daniel in Genesis 16 9 with part two of his message entitled Ishmael.
0: The messenger of the Lord found her by the spring of water in the wilderness by the spring on the way to Shur. This is the first time we meet this angel of the Lord, who you'll find some forty-eight times in your Bible. And there's a lot of discussions about who the angel of the Lord is. There's a lot of commentators who would say that this is an Old Testament incarnation of Jesus, the Messiah. Some people would say it's one of the archangels. You guys know what I'm always going to say. That when the Bible is silent, what? We should be also. So... I don't know who the angel of the Lord is. But I know he keeps popping up and he speaks in the name of God. I don't feel comfortable saying that this is an Old Testament incarnation of Jesus. Because it doesn't say he's the Messiah. It says he's the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord. Some people believe that. And if you believe that, I have no problem. That it, you believe that this is a, you know, a theophany, a, a, a sighting of Jesus in the Old Testament. And I'm okay with that. A lot of people who I really respect and love Great scholars believe that, other ones say, well it just doesn't say that, so we don't know. But look at what happens here. You gotta love this angel. What does he say? Hagar, hey Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? Fascinating. He knows her name. He knows that she's Sarah's maid. Where are you coming from and where are you going? See, this I love this about the way God works, because oftentimes God just doesn't tell us the score. He makes us have to talk about it. God doesn't just say, this is the deal. Sometimes you just ask, like, remember when Adam and Eve, they were hiding from the Lord? Where are you? God knew exactly where he was. But God likes to ask a question to draw somebody out. He knew exactly who she was. He knew exactly that she was Sarah's maid. He knew everything. But he asked, where are you coming from? And where are you going? And Hagar simply answered, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarah." Right? Now think about this. This whole calamity. Abram and Sarah making a big mess. Hagar is fleeing, this Egyptian girl. And the angel of Yahweh shows up to talk to her. This shows God's grace. It shows God's love. This angel in the name of Yahweh. See the angel of the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the personal name of God. That tetragrammaton. The Yud, the hey, the Vuv, and the He. Yahweh. Old school Jehovah. That's the way they used to say it. Comes and speaks to her. Look at what he says in verse 9. And, and really there's two focuses or foci of, of this discussion. First, it's the status of Hagar in Abram's house. And second, the future of her son. So really, this angel comes to share two things with her. Her status in the house and what's going to happen to her son. You get the status. Look at verse 9. Return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. She says, go back and submit. Now, it's interesting. I did, a, I did a staff devotion just this week on the spiritual discipline of submission. You might say, that's a strange thing to talk about at a staff meeting. But the reality is that the Bible teaches submission As the way it is to be a Christian First we submit to the Lord And then we submit to each other Before a a wife submits to her husband It says submit yourselves to one another In the fear of the Lord Submission is the heart posture Of every believer. First we submit ourselves to God. We submit ourselves to his word. And then we submit ourselves to one another. We esteem others higher than ourselves. We realize that the greatest in the kingdom are the servants of all. That's submission language. The apostle Paul talks about himself as a debtor to the whole world. He's saying, I am submissive to the whole world in the name of Jesus that I may serve it. It's interesting that even though... Sarai is not treating her right. She says, go back and submit to her and honor her. Now, I don't even have to make an application for you and I. Because we all feel the tension, don't we? Submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. We live in a culture in America that the concept of submission is abhorrent to our culture. You know why? Because we had the blessing of the 60s where everyone, you know, where all the hippies like question authority, right? And then when all those hippies became, you know, yuppies and they had kids, then they, they already had a question authority mindset and they just taught their kids to not respect authority. And so we live in a culture where everyone thinks that they are the final authority on everything. You know, as I love when I talk to my son Obadiah and Obadiah tells me something, um, I'm like, Obadiah, that's not really true. Yes, it is. (laughs) Well, buddy, no, it doesn't act, that's not actually what it means. Uh huh. You know, my, my other seven year old buddy told me so. (laughs) And, And we laugh, but we're all like that, right? I mean, when was the last time you voluntarily submitted to somebody? Have you ever? I hope so. Because we submit to God by submitting to other people. Just the way we love God by loving other people. And so, husbands, you submit yourselves to your wives. Wives, you submit yourselves to your husbands. We submit ourselves under our bosses, and we're the best employees in the world in the name of Jesus. We submit ourselves under government, even when we don't like it. Now, we know that submission has a stopping point when it becomes destructive. That's where submission has its end point, when submitting is destructive. You find that in a number of places in the scriptures. But the reality is, is for most of us, we don't submit at all to anybody, Right? And I'm here to tell you that submission is a spiritual discipline that's very valuable to God. When I'm talking to a husband and a wife or, or a child and their parents, I say, listen, you submit to the Lord and your spouse gets the benefit. You submit to, your, to the Lord and your parents get the benefit. As we submit to God, the people around us get the benefit of that. Because if we're submitted to God, then we're going to submit ourselves to one another. Oftentimes, submission is always being spoken about of wives submitting their husbands. But at first it begins with submit to one another, and then it says, wives submit to your husbands, and husbands die for your wives. And I get tired of hearing people say, oh, the Apostle Paul, he's sexist. I'm like, darn right he is. He's anti-male. Because I'd rather submit than die any day. People say, oh, I don't understand this. Women are less than men have to submit. I'm like, man, men have to die for their wives. And you know what? It's really easy to submit to a person who's willing to give up their life for you. Right? We submit to Jesus because he's willing to die on a cross for our sins. And submission is a spiritual discipline. And it's fascinating that the angel of the Lord says, Hagar, go back and submit yourself. You're not supposed to be out here. Go back. And what else? Go back and look what it says in verse 10. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. Wow. He blesses her. He says, listen, I'm going to multiply your descendants exceedingly. I've promised to bless Abram and I'm going to bless you with him. Your descendants are going to be multiplied. In verse 11, it goes on to say this. It says, behold, you are with child and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, which means God hears because the Lord has heard your affliction. Wow. What a promise. Go back and submit. I'm going to bless you with a ton of descendants. And you're with child. You're going to have a son. His name's Ishmael. And that means God hears. Now, as she begins to discuss or when the angel tells her about her son, he shall be a wild man. So we get this idea, is he's going to be an outdoorsy kind of guy. He's not going to be a refined type of a guy. Notice what else it says. His hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand shall be against him. So not only is this guy a wild guy, but there's going to be a lot of conflict for him. We're going to see Ishmael picking on Isaac in Genesis 21 verse 9. We know that Ishmael is the father of the Muslim nations. And no matter how you rewrite history, Muhammad spread Islam by war. Now, I need to say this because we know that that's a historical fact. But the skeptic will say, well, Christianity was spread by the sword as well. And you know what? That is a part of Christian history that we have to apologize for. I always tell people this. People do all sorts of awful things in the name of God. Had Jesus spread his message by the sword, then we could say it's a, it's, the message is wrong. See, Jesus never spread his message by the sword. He spread it by giving up his life for everybody. Jesus' jihad was love. Jesus' jihad was love. See, Muhammad, he spread Islam in its infancy by war. Just go read it. Read the history. So when Muslims take up arms against other people, you can look right back to the founder and say, well, it makes sense why. Their founder did that. But as a Christian, no way. No way. That's not who our Lord is. But here we have a prophecy. He's going to be a wild man. His hand's going to be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And then finally, he shall dwell in the presence of his brethren. It's interesting. He's going to maintain, Ishmael is going to maintain, an independent standing in the presence of all the descendants of Abraham. Think about a map of the Middle East today. Think about it. This prophecy given thousands of years before Jesus. You're looking at its fulfillment today. Descendants of Ishmael. Dwelling in the presence of the descendants of Abraham to Isaac. All right here. 2,000 years before even Jesus walked on the earth. Now, look at how Hagar responds in verse 13. Then she called the name, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees. In Hebrew, it's El Roy. For she said, have I also seen him who sees me? Therefore, verse 14, the well was called Bir Lahai Roy, because it's between Kadesh and Bered. Beer Lahai Roy means the well of the one who lives and sees me. So she's naming the Lord because he's seen me in my affliction. She's naming the place where this happens. This is the well of the one who lives and sees me. And in verse 15, tells us simply, So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So she goes back, she honors this message, she obviously tells Abram what this angel of the Lord said. Abram names the child Ishmael, and we know that Abram at this point is 86 years old. Now as we move into... Chapter 17, it says this, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him, saying, Now look at this. Now Abram is 99. So 13 years have elapsed. Between the end of chapter 16, when Ishmael is born, and then chapter 17, now he's 99 years old, right? And the Lord appears to Abram, and he speaks to him, and he says, I am Almighty God. In the Hebrew, it says, I am El Shaddai. Now, it's translated as Almighty when they translated the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek, something we call the Septuagint, because there's about 70 scholars See, the Greeks, they thought that Greek culture was the bomb diggity. It was the way to go. And so every group of people, I said the bomb diggity, that's right. <laughs> the Greeks, they decided that they wanted to make every land that they conquered, they, they wanted to make it Greek. So they took all of the best writings of all the different people and they translated them all into Greek. So they took, when they were in the area of Israel, Palestine, they said, we're going to translate the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. And so when they did it, they translated El Shaddai as Panta Krantor, which literally means Him of all power. Panta means all. So the all-powerful one. If you look at it in the Hebrew, it's fascinating because most people would say that the Shaddai, it comes from the root shed, which either means to pour out blessings or in abundantly, so most people would say El Shaddai is God, the all-sufficient one. Or, it's also fascinating that the word Shad, now, I'm going to give you a quick little Hebrew language lesson. In Hebrew, when it was written, it was all consonants, no vowels. Okay? The vowels were put in much later by a group of people called the Masoretes because Hebrew wasn't a common language anymore and people weren't just going to read it the right way. So if you read the original manuscripts, it's just all consonants. So it would have the three, and most of their words are based around what they call triconsonantal roots. There are three letters that are together. So this El Shaddai is the S, the H, and the D. But you can vowel point them different ways. And if you were to read the writings of the rabbis, which I like to call rabbinics, you'll find that anytime you get to a cool word, the rabbis go through all these different words that you get from this one root. So I just gave you one, the idea of shed, which literally means to pour out in abundance. Other rabbis say that it's the word shed, which is actually the word for breast, which speaks of the reality of the comfort or nourishment of God. So you have this idea as El Shaddai as the all-sufficient one, the all-nourishing one. It's a fascinating word that you can... Pull all these different things about it. So we have either all almighty, which has the idea of God having all power, or all sufficiency, because you think about all a child needs in its infancy is its mother. And a mother is sufficient for a child because of a mother's maternal care. So both of these words are from the same root, El Shaddai. So God says, I am the almighty one, the all-sufficient one. Now, I want to make the... Application for you and I. Do you know God is all-powerful and all-sufficient? For so many of us, we know that he's God, but he's not the all-sufficient one. He's not enough for us. We need God and. What well, I'm here to tell you that all of your soul's longings, everything that you truly need are bound up in him. And if you're going to say, hey, well, what about everything else in life? But the reality is this, God is all you need. Martin Luther said it this way, I get to enjoy all this in Christ as well. See, God is the sufficiency for the human soul. He is all that we need. He's all that we need. And sometimes the only way to learn that is when he's all we have. And sometimes that's what the desert season is all about. Stripping away everything that we could try and find sufficiency in. So that we can learn that He is the all-sufficient One. That God Himself satisfies the human soul to its fullness. So I want to encourage you, if you're in a valley, or if maybe you're not, but you will be in a week, a month, a year, ten years, listen... Sometimes you only know and learn that God is sufficient when he's all you have. And if he's all you have, and you find him to be sufficient, then you are the richest person in the world. You have learned the most important thing, that he is all sufficient. Now, it's interesting. He says, the Lord says, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. I love this. Who do we walk before? Him. This is, for me, the key to how to live a holy life. Sure, it's inspired by the Spirit of God, but it's the reality that no matter where you are, God sees everything. We walk before Him. You could fool the whole world. Everyone. You could tell, you could posture and say, I'm this, I'm that. God sees everything. There is a set of eyes that are on you that knows not every, not only every action, but every motivation in your heart. And when we truly fear the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, then all of a sudden we realize, I walk my life before him. And he sees everything. I can't, I can't fake it, I can't fake him out. I can't pretend to be something I'm not before him. A.W. Tozer said, look, it's really easy to be holy when someone's looking over your shoulder now some of you may be freaked out by that I mean why is God looking at everything and I would say because God loves you so much he doesn't want to miss a beat God loves you so much he doesn't want to miss a beat just the way when you have a child and that child's young you do your parents don't want to miss a beat right you want to see all of it all of it That's how God is for you. And we need to realize that we walk before him. And when we realize that we walk before him, that reality will purify our way. Because there's nothing worse than breaking the heart of the one who loved us enough to send his son to die on a cross for our sins. That is a great motivation. You walk before him, and so do I. God doesn't miss a trick. And when we walk before him, he says, and be blameless. Live in such a way that there is no way to bring blame or reproach against our lives. And I gotta be honest with you, it breaks my heart that Christians don't take their lives as seriously as God does. It breaks my heart that we're so easy to dismiss our own failings and focused on others. I just had a talk with someone, they said, you know, Christian guy I said, I just don't understand why so many Christians are so focused. On trying to keep gay marriage as illegal, and they're mailing in their own marriages. I said, man, it's hypocrisy. Not saying that we shouldn't stand up for what we believe, but God forbid the people who are crusading against these things and their wives are like, I don't think my husband even loves me. See, we need to take our lives as seriously as God does. And God values our lives. God wants our lives to be lived in such a way that we we walk before Him. And even if no one else understands, we walk before Him. Now notice, he says again, verse 2, And I will make my covenant between me and you, and will multiply you exceedingly. In verse 3, Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your descendants after you in their generations.
1: Jesus is- Our God satisfies the human soul to its fullness. In today's teaching, Pastor Daniel asked us to remember that God is all-sufficient. He told Abram he was going to multiply his descendants, which would seem impossible for a man at 99 years old. God wanted Abram to live righteously. We have to live our lives before God, and he sees everything. God wants to be there for us, and we walk before him. For most of us, our smartphone is an extension of our body. They are constantly ringing and dinging, telling us what to do and where to go next. We want to encourage you to subscribe to the Jesus is Real podcast. Each week, the programs right here on the radio are available in podcast format. So if you miss one of the broadcasts, you can always catch up by subscribing to the Jesus is Real podcast. Log on to jesusisrealradio.com. Join Pastor Daniel in the next edition of Jesus is Real Radio, when we'll learn how Abram and Sarai get name changes that reflect the covenant made between them and God. That covenant is eternal. We'll consider ways that we still see that today. God's requirement of circumcision is a sign of faith, considering that all the men in the land were not infants, but obedience is a true reflection of the heart. You've been listening to Jesus is Real Radio with Pastor Daniel Fusco of Crossroads Community Church. Pastor Daniel will continue teaching through his series entitled Patriarchs. Until then, may God bless.